This is a Federal News Network podcast. You may have heard of the PIL, the Procurement Innovation Lab at the Homeland Security Department. Well, get ready for NAIL, the NASA Acquisition Innovation Lab. Carla Smith-Jackson is the Senior Procurement Executive and Deputy Chief Acquisition Officer at NASA. At the ACT-IAC ELC event in Hershey, Pennsylvania last week, Smith-Jackson told Federal News Network's Jason Miller about how NASA is modeling its newest effort after Homeland Security's highly successful initiative. What we're looking to do is create a safe place for us to experiment with ways to reduce cycle time, ways to be more cost-effective, and we'll take candidate procurements and we'll try to figure out how can we save time. It might be collapsing past performance into contractor responsibility, reducing the page count, coming up with um, streamlined eval criteria, but different things. And so we're setting up a new organization. We're hoping in January to feel that. And this organization will be, you said, kind of modeled after the pill. We'll try to do the same thing. We'll you'll, you'll test things out. And, if, and failure is a good option sometimes. Exactly. It's a safe place to succeed or to fail. And we're looking to codify our successes into policy and guidance to the workforce so that we can use it across the enterprise. I realize it's just getting started, so there's probably a lot of more questions than answers right now. But do you expect it to be like three to five people, one or two people? Is it going to be in your office, obviously, in the acquisition office? Is there anything more in terms of what you're thinking right now? It's going to be in the headquarters reporting directly to me with a senior executive, three to five people, core headquarters, but representation from each one of our 10 centers. That way we can actually field or get actual what I would call case studies from the field for operational use. All right. Well, a lot more to talk to you, I know, as it kind of comes together. Related to that is NASA did something in the last couple of years, the centralization of the acquisition process, and that's really started to pay a lot of dividends. Maybe talk a little bit about what you did, and then we can talk about the benefits you're What we're seeing is giving industry an opportunity to give us a a total solution as opposed to a single point solution. So we've regionalized things like security services, logistics, engineering services. We're consolidating those. We're also looking at the implications for small business to make sure those niche procurements still stay with small business. But we're finding we're getting economies of scale, benefits, and we're looking at longer term contracts to support our mission areas, our launches and what have you. At one point, NASA, you said they were each doing their own procurement. Was there a a moment of uh, aha that why are we spending so much time, effort, and resources on something that we could not centralize altogether, but really at least reduce a lot of the redundancies? Exactly. So about 2018, there was an aha moment. There are 10 centers where we said, hey, there's a lot of duplication of cost by we're buying the same thing in multiple locations. Wouldn't it be great if we put all of our eggs in one basket so we can minimize those overhead costs and the transactional costs and put more money into mission areas to get us to moon and to Mars? And those folks didn't their jobs change in the sense of they just have a reporting structure that's different. They're still at that center doing that center's work. They just have more standards, more, if you will, uh, standardized tools and the like, correct? Uh, maybe, maybe not. So it may be that it's more, uh, what I'll say, cost-effective for all of the grounds maintenance to take place in one center, and they'll receive services. So we look at where we have our competencies. Some people have competencies in, say, institutional logistics or engineering services. Others have in mission areas like the ISS or our EVAS, our suits, or our lunar terrain vehicle. It allows those that do the big mission areas to focus on those and to develop competencies and institutional services in other centers. How's the reaction been generally from the centers? I know it's three, four years ago, but things take time. People have to get used to it. There's, Mm -hmm. here we go, cultural change. We are still doing change management because there's a sense by a lot of senior leadership that they want to see all of their procurement happen in a single location, and there's an ownership. But there's a value opportunity for us to leverage these skills, and so we're managing the change with uniform policy, uniform procurement experiences. We have industry that's supportive of this, and then we're seeing some cost savings, not just in dollars and cents, but in opportunity cost of personnel resources. 
So you have the nail, you have the central, centralization of procurement, two really important pieces. The, the last piece just about NASA is you also have a great workforce re- retainment. I mean, you mentioned that your attrition rate or, or people leaving rate is somewhere between you know 8 and 10%. And in some places, it could be as high as 30%. Right. A lot of that obviously has to do with NASA being a great place to work. Right. Favs again tells us that. But, but from your experience, you've been at other agencies. Why do you think NASA is, is doing so well in keeping your 1102s, which we all know are hard to hire and hard to keep? First is the work, right? They're doing challenging work. They understand the mission. They feel like they're making a, a, a big contribution to the larger mission. The second is the opportunity to do different things within NASA so you don't have to stay in a single area in a single location. And so but between those two things, that's what keeps people. We are seeing more retirements because people are getting older, and we are having to go out and do a little more recruitment than what we've seen in the past, but we're preparing and building the bench so that it won't be as big of a deal. What are you doing around getting kind of that next generation to come in? Again, whether they're under 30 or between that 30 and 50, age, because if you need some people with that mid-career, you need some early career, Mm -hmm. how are you addressing those from an 1102 acquisition contract uh, representative type of of job? So early career, we're targeting underrepresented and more minority groups and women. That's at the universities and, um, say, the minority serving institutions and HBCUs. Mid-career, we're actually looking at people that have experience buying our line of work. So it might be industry partners, and, and oddly enough, we do get people come in from industry. It might be people from educational institutions, and then we also do look at DOD and other areas where they want to come and broaden, but it's similar work. So, so there's a natural, I'll say, um, affinity that they have for this work. Where we're having our biggest challenges are at the executive level, and that's what we're doing is building succession plans. We're putting IDPs in place so that we can have a strong bench for when our executives leave. We lost five executives this year, and we filled them all, but it was very difficult to find just the right caliber of leadership and actual technical experience. And the folks left probably retired, as you said, exactly. retirement's hitting you, yeah. It's retirement. They're not going anyplace else but to, to say my career's over. And we're proud of that. But by the same token, we need to have that bench ready to take over when they do retire. Carla, I'm going to ask you to put your other hat on. Uh, you also work uh, with the Federal Acquisition Institute, and there's some exciting news coming from FAI, something that has been on the books, if you will, or, or a desire for it for about I think you said 30 years, give or take. Talk to me about what FAI and DOD and, and the civilian sector are on the cusp of. It's really an exciting time for us. I think all the right executives are in all the right places. Um, I spent the punch of my career in DOD, so I understand what it means to be a member of the DOD acquisition workforce. John Teneglia, my colleague who happens to be over DPAP, also sees the benefit to people on the civilian side of the federal workforce. So we've struck with OMB in the lead a reciprocal agreement for recognition of a single certification standard for the 1102 community. And then we're looking at some point on the civilian side to customize our continuous learning points to make sure that people get concentrated training in their area of expertise. So it might be pricing, it might be, um, say, e-business, but it's more than just going to conferences. We want them to get technical training for those CLPs, not just go to conferences and listen to speakers, but to actually learn new ideas. What's key here is that if I'm qualified in DOD, I can then move to a civilian agency very easily and vice versa. And that's just going to open the door for both a career advancement, but also the ease of use, because before it was, well, I'm qualified for DOD or I'm qualified for civilian, correct? Exactly. Not only that, but you'd have to start all over. Um, I'll use myself, for example. When I left DOD to become chief of contracts at Coast Guard, I had to go back and take a small purchase class because they, and I was buying weapon systems, you know, cutters and aircraft and all that, and I've been buying systems for DOD, but it wasn't the civilian, the FAI standard. We will get away from doing all of what I call that silliness, and we'll have a reciprocal arrangement. So it'll allow easier movement, and then people want to take classes that when they're taking classes, they're not at work doing work, right? And they'll be able to hit the ground running on day one. 
What's the timing of this? I think it's still in, in that in that early stage. But w- are you hoping to get this out for a public comment? What's what's a, give me a sense of when should people start to look for this? We're looking at the January timeframe, but we're looking at it what we call a long transition year. So it won't go into effect immediately. We'll start the transition in January, and then it will cycle through probably one full year before it comes into effect. We'll make sure that people that are in cycle to get their um, certifications under the old system get their certifications. The other big change about this is the number of continuous learning credits or classes needed. You mentioned that. Make sure that you're focused. The the one thing that folks maybe should keep an eye out for is an increased number over two years versus the one year. Exactly. What's the thought behind that? Two thoughts. One, it gives industry an opportunity to support the entire federal sector, meaning helping us develop curriculum and coursework to meet our needs. So that's an opportunity as far as industry goes. It also allows us to provide more specialization for our workforce so they could be more capably equipped. So we want people to go to conferences, we want people to interact and collaborate, but we also want people to get more technical skills in their given discipline that they're working every day as opposed to things they'll never use. Carla Smith-Jackson is the Senior Procurement Executive and Deputy Chief Acquisition Officer at NASA, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. We'll post the interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.